Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com here at the Kia Oval in London with Charles Gardner. Uh, hello. <laughs> and um, so we're, we're sitting in front of one of the most amazing cricket pitches in the world here in London. And I was just telling Brent that up until about 200 years ago, uh, the space behind us was a public execution ground. So in talking about tobacco harm reduction, I think that that may be more appropriate than anybody, even in the, the meeting that we're attending here, uh, would realize. There's a few people out there that I think would, you know, we should be sending out there, maybe a Mr. Bloomberg. Well, I, I would put it a different way. There, there are people being executed with poor policies uh, and with bad advice and with uh, exaggerations of harms and lies by omission of context and uh, false uh, claims of causation uh, from data that only shows associations and just flat out lies. And uh, so, and specifically, obviously, I'm referring to tobacco harm reduction, innovations, uh, safer nicotine alternatives to deadly toxic tobacco products. Well, and we're here to talk about COP9, which is coming up. And we've talked a little bit about COP9 in our last episode. I mean, what do you expect from this? I mean, they, they certainly seem to be preferring their ideology over saving lives. Yeah, there's some real contrast going on here because COP26 uh, on climate change is also going on. It's started right now. Uh, just uh, the day before yesterday, uh, a number of protesters here in London literally glued their hands to, uh, to a street with something like crazy glue and to block the street. So there's, there's real activism there. Uh, and COP26, which is the climate change COP, so that's the good COP, has more than 400 NGOs represented there uh, as observers. Industry is there, so, um, and industry that you know, makes solar power and wind farms, but, but also the uh, you know, legacy um, you know, evil fossil fuel companies are there as part of the discussion. It's an open and transparent process. And then what's, uh, what's going to happen starting on the 8th of November is COP9 of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is like the bad cop. Uh, complete contrast, uh, complete it, secrecy. Uh, we just learned this morning that uh, INCO, which is the organization for which I work, has been excluded from observer, observer status there. Um, again, so we, were, we applied and, and were excluded in, uh, at COP8, which was two years ago. And but you're at, in a consumer organization. We are people who use safer nicotine, so we're the, the actual people that, um, that should be part of the discussion. You can't exclude people who are living with HIV from discussions around HIV and AIDS policies. You can't exclude uh, people living with mental health problems from discussions of policies that affect them. And I'm not sure why it's appro considered appropriate to exclude people who use any form of nicotine from the policies that affect us. I want to ask you about Canada because obviously that's our home country. Mm -hmm. and. It's hard to get a sense from those outside of Canada really how bad it is because, I mean, the CBC just last week, uh, Dr. David Hammond last week uh, came out and now uh, teen vaping has reached the pre-pandemic levels 
according to the University of Waterloo researcher, that pretty much is the one person who provides all the data in Canada. And um, it, it's hard to jive that because back in March of this year, he came out uh, in the media and said that teen vapings are leveling off. So we're just going through this cycle of being beaten over the head. And it's really hard because our public broadcaster, you know, does leads that teen vapings back up, you know, and it, there's just no way to fight it. You're excluded from the CBC too as well. So, I mean, it seems everywhere it's exclusionary. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm just an honorary Canadian, um, and uh, that comes from years ago research I was doing on healthcare innovation uh, with the uh, uh, Canadian Institutes of Health Research and, um, and others, uh, other organizations, uh, IDRC mm -hmm. um, in, in Ottawa. Um, and uh, so I, I wish I had time to look more carefully at the, the data that's coming out of Canada. I'm quite fluent in the data from the United States. And generally, the trends in smoking and uh, use of safer nicotine alternatives are pretty similar in both countries. It would be strange. I mean, we are neighbors. If, if the numbers are going in completely opposite directions, what we're seeing in the United States is teen smoking rates are at the lowest they've been in, in 50 years. I would be surprised if Canada, if, if the Canuckers are different. Well, and that was and the main part of the story, was is that uh, can Canadian numbers are going up while the U.S. are going down. And that was the actual graphic on CBC. But are you thinking about uh, e-cigarette use or, or We're talking cigarettes. about vaping use. Yeah, vaping. Yeah, so that's, that's a yeah. puzzle because, so teen, everybody obsesses on teen use, but you know more than 90% of uh, people who are regular users of nicotine vapes are adults, not teens. I think that would be a surprise to most people, uh, you know, the average person. Sure. Because that's not what the screaming headlines are telling them. Um, but teen vaping is, is way down. It's down, uh, if you include middle and, and high school in the United States, it's down 62% in just two years. That's a stunning drop. And our public health officials are, are basically kind of keeping quiet about that one. Mm -hmm. I would be stunned if, if something like that had not uh, also happened in, in Canada. Well, and, and that's the thing, and I mean, the last point on this is that the act, there is actually no data available to, to see because it's not in a report. Uh, it was something that he delivered in a conference to SRNT back in August, and then just So got, it's not peer-reviewed, it's not, uh, it hasn't gone through any kind of vetting process. To, no. And we know, I hate to say it, because I, I don't know the man and I don't want to slander people, but uh, questions were raised about the data that he produced just... Uh, the last time. The last time. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, it, it's weird, you know. Uh, we live in a world where there is no voice. Like, Health Canada, there really, there's no discussion. They're not talking to anybody. It's just like some like amorphous blob of bureaucracy that it's very Orwellian, and there's you know, Big Brother I guess is up there. So because of our moral panic, uh, our our politicians are moving forward with policy cures for for this crisis that that they perceive, and um, that involves uh, raising taxes so that decreases the affordability of safer alternatives to smoking. Um, it involves uh, capping nicotine at arbitra arbitrary levels, um, which is an odd thing to do because if you hand a smoker 
a cigarette that's a 50% reduced nicotine, they're going to puff more often and deeper into their lungs, and you're going to increase their harm. So if you think there is any harm from e-cigarettes, that's a pretty well crazy thing to do to cap the nicotine. Um, and, and then flavor bans, obviously, is, is said to be some kind of cure. Now, that, this, is, this is on the logic that what remains the cigarette-flavored e-cigarette um, is some sort of teen repellent. There actually is no evidence of that. But we're, we're going with that because, uh, well, it just stands to reason, right? And, uh, but both of these uh, approaches then reduce the acceptability for adult smokers and are likely to cause some adult vapors to uh, relapse to smoking. And then finally, we're reducing access. We're reducing availability. Uh, in uh, North America, vape shops are, are shutting down everywhere. Here in London, there's a vape shop on every corner. It's quite stunning. Uh, you walk into them and they're knowledgeable and they're, they're ready to help smokers quit and to stay quit. Um, but we also, uh, and I'm sure in parts of Canada, you're moving in the same direction to ban online sales and ban mail shipments, which we have done in the United States. And, and, and so when I worked on, um, on HIV AIDS uh, drugs and vaccines, on tuberculosis drugs, uh, drug development uh, in pub public-private partnerships, uh, at the Rockefeller Foundation um, and uh, HIV and malaria drugs <laughs> and vaccines, uh, same thing. It was always about not just the innovation that would that would lead to a better, more effective uh, drug or vaccine, but it was about these three A's, right? The affordability, the acceptability because if it's not acceptable to the final user at the bedside, it's going to help no one, and the availability. And so we're, we're shutting all of that down for products that are clearly safer, that clearly help smokers quit, uh, that could be a, an immense boon for public health. So Charles, I've got a, um, a Latin saying here, maybe it's salus populi suprema. Salus is probably health, and the, of the public, uh, is supreme or is the overarching thing. Salus populi suprema. Mm. Let the good of the people be the supreme. There we go. Or, or the other way in which it is, which it's um, also translated is let, let the safety ah. of the people be supreme. Yeah, one and would think that that would be the goal. Yeah, it's Cicero. Ah, brilliant man. Yeah, and it's like the motto of a huge number of states in the U.S. and governments across the world. And that's the motto. And all of a sudden I'm going, oh, no wonder they keep saying that their job is to keep people safe. I'm like, you know, we didn't hire you to keep me safe. But, you know, straight to the Latin, it seems to be that that's really what they think their job is. Yeah, I, I used to teach healthcare ethics. We talk about these basic moral principles. I mean, governments are built upon moral principles as well as is healthcare. And um, and the thing that's rattling around my brain um, over the past year is is two basic principles. 
in healthcare, one of which is autonomy, and that involves truth-telling and informed consent and informed choice. But the other is utility, so that's John Stuart Mill, this is the greatest good for the greatest number. And there's often a, a divide in public health. Uh, so that, you know, doctors at the bedside are, are more fo focused on the patient and the individual patient's uh, autonomy and their and their um, and their um, health benefit and the you know their um, um, quality of life is, is the phrase I was looking for. And then there's a the you know big public health background uh, kind of stepping back several steps where you're looking at the whole population. And that is more of a utilitarian approach. And, and, and this is where you, uh, you might be um, inclined to introduce taxes to uh, stop people from doing something you don't like them to do to, to get them to stop using salt or, or sugary drinks or obviously cigarettes or alcohol, right, the sin taxes. Uh, this is where you, you, you might ban certain things like indoor smoking and, and, and so on because it's for a, this kind of greater public good and you're willing to decrease the autonomy of individuals for that greater, greater good for the greatest number. But the thing is, in, in any um, healthcare class teaching to medical students and nursing students, dealing with case studies with patients, it, these two moral principles come into conflict all the time. Mm -hmm. Those are the most interesting case studies you can deal with because the uh, kind of broader policy setting for, you know, which can be paternalistic, which is not a good thing. Um, the modern term um, used by some is the kind of nanny statism. Um, used that before. Libertarians <laughs> love that, and uh, but uh, w everybody uses it these days. Sure. I don't know when that started to pop into the general conversation. Well, the moment they locked down the entire Western world might have been a start. It's been around before that, but it would be interesting to go back and look. Uh, there's a conflict, and it, it, there's a genuine conflict uh, that should be perceived here, and it should be discussed. And you know, there are reasonable people on uh, you know who see uh, a person's individual autonomy, uh, the need to tell them the truth, uh, you know, as a as you know, fundamental good, and um, and it does come into conflict sometimes. So in, here in in traditional tobacco control approaches, uh, we've demonized nicotine, for example, to the, to the extent that 80% of physicians in North America, but not just there, 80% of physicians in India believe that nicotine causes cancer, heart disease, and lung disease, which it doesn't. And a simple Google search for very trusted sources like the International Agency for Research on Cancer will tell you it doesn't cause cancer. and. <clears throat> But so 80% of four out of five doctors uh, are that profoundly misinformed, and that is a direct result of decades of tobacco control messaging for, for some, the greatest good for the greatest number. Somehow it was perceived that demonizing nicotine would discourage smoking initiation and encourage smokers to quit. And, and for their own good, it's a paternalistic approach. So to my thinking as a public health person for 30 years, um, tobacco control is unlike any other field of public health. It has incrementally and slowly become more and more comfortable with these kind of um, misrepresentations of, of the full truth, a lie by omission of context. Okay, 
the evidence is overwhelming that even American chew tobacco, which, which is actually quite toxic. Right, is safer than combustible. Is safer than a cigarette. Sure. And public health uh, has got its mindset on the idea that there is no safe tobacco, and that, so that's the message they're going to go with. But don't you think that a smoker would, you know, could benefit from knowing that there's a safer alternative? Now, that's where we were 20, 30 years ago. But now there are, a, a, you know, vastly safer alternatives, safer nicotine alternatives. And so you see that continuing reluctance to tell smokers. So now 60% of, of smokers think that, for example, e-cigarettes are just as harmful, if not more harmful, than smoking. Again, profoundly misinformed by the very public health people who should be working to their benefit.